So uh, we need to we need to sing that one again soon. That's a good one. Gracious Savior of my ruined life, you know, do we cherish those sorts of lyrics? Uh, all right, it's good to see y'all. Um, Last night, I'm, I'm talking with Kim. It's probably about 9, 9.30. And you know how there are some stories that you tell about yourself, and they put you in a bad light, but not really? <laughs> and there are other stories that they definitely put you in a bad light, and then they leave you there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Kim was telling me, you know, she, she asks me before every time I preach, are you going to say anything about me or our kids? And... <laughs> And I said to her, um, yeah, I'm going to tell one about you and I tomorrow. And I told her which one it was, and she said, don't tell them that, you know, because that's going to put you in a bad light. And, you know, I don't know about that. And plus, she's teaching an arena this hour, um, and so she's not in the room. And so, you know, we can, we can forget about her for a little while. <laughs> so that already put me in a bad light. <laughs> Yeah, so years ago, and we hadn't even been married a year, and uh, we're, we're living on campus at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in apartment A5, and it's at the end of a week, Friday night, end of a week, long week, and, um, you know, it was in the warmer months, I remember, because the windows were open and so forth, and I beat her home. Uh, after class, she was at work at the time, and she was working down uh, close to Center City in Chicago as a meeting planner, I recall. Anyway, she comes home, and, um, and she says uh, to me as she walks through the door, uh, you, you know, you change into more casual clothes. Now, you know, we have the evening. Um, you know, I had gone to, you remember these days, by the way? I went to Blockbuster, <laughs> and I got... Uh, a couple of movies, VHS, you know, and you're feeling like, you know, back in those days, that was so cutting edge. Like, I am savvy enough, and we've got a blockbuster right down in the Dominic's uh, strip mall area. And uh, so I had these a couple of movies, and, um, and she, she comes to me, and she has a quarter in her hand. And she says, um, do you have a quarter, she says to me. And I said to her, what for? And she looked at me and she said, for me. <laughs> and I said, okay, yeah, I get that, but what for? And she says, because I want a candy bar and I want to go down across the street to the Aldine building. There's a vending machine at the back of that and I'm going to get myself a Snickers bar. And I'm like, no. Because you haven't seen the checkbook the way that I have. You know, in the dollars column, it's empty. And in the cents column, it reads zero, seven. And so there might be a quarter in the ashtray uh, out, out in the car, but, you know, no. Well, I ended up, you know, we found a quarter. She went, she got her candy bar, okay? But, but my point is that we're looking at unlikely attributes today. 
unlikely attributes, five unlikely attributes in God. I'm going to say a little bit more about that in just a moment. That was an unlikely thing that Kim discovered about me, and I want to paint that in a very positive light, okay? <laughs> I am being frugal. I'm taking, you know, seriously my responsibility to be a good husband and to provide for my family, you know? And so, doggone it, if we've only got seven cents in the bank account, you, I, we cannot afford to give you a quarter, that's for, and now she's saying back to me, that is the most miserly, you know, Scrooge-like thing I've ever encountered in my entire life. And she was right, yeah. Yeah, thank you, Elaine. <laughs> you know, you know the guys who preach up here, Trent, Trent says it pretty much every week, you know, we've got, we, you can count on Elaine to be there with you. And so, and I'm kind of like, Elaine, I need you right about now. Seriously, you know, we've, we've come through this season. We had Easter last week. It's been powerful. Talking about the cross through the month of March, most of the month of March. Now we want to get back into Isaiah. Open up in your Bibles, if you've got them, to um, Isaiah chapter 43. Here at our church, we've got five core values, the first of which is this to know God for who he is. Not just to know God, but to know God for who he has revealed himself to be. To know God as he is. We don't want to guess at who he is. We don't want to craft idols. Even in our respective psyches, we don't want to craft idols we don't want to guess. We don't want to insist that he be this or that. We don't want to come together and vote on who we think he ought to be. We want to read the word of God and discover who it is that he is. Who does he say he is? And sometimes as we're working our way through the word of God, we come across stuff that, oh my, you mean that's who you are. Now I had figured some different things and I've heard about uh, some different attributes and I might have given kind of a theological mental assent to those sorts of things, but that there are other things that, I, I love it because in our relationship, I feel it. I feel that you are this way toward me and as we walk along in life together. But then as we're walking along in our life together, Father, you know, or, or, or Jesus Christ's son, and, 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 but we're together, but suddenly there's this thing that kind of interrupts it, and I'm not quite sure, like, is that really you, or am I dreaming, or am I just misguided somehow? What just happened? Unlikely. So what we want to do today, and it's kind of the overarching thing, we want to get to know God, you know, know God for who he is, but that there are these five less likely sorts of features about him, especially the first four of the five that you have there in your lap, perhaps, um, on the outline for the morning, okay? So, put my glasses on so that I can read and open up to uh, Isaiah 43. And we're looking at verse 22. We're going to start in verse 22. This is Isaiah 43, 22. God says, through Isaiah, 
Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But here's what you have done. You have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Attribute number one, unlikely attribute number one, the weariness of God. Now, we had just read several chapters earlier. This would have been back in February. Um, as to the fact, the truth, the, the eternal truth, that God does not grow weary. Isaiah chapter 40, I think it's verse 28. God does not grow weary, neither does he grow faint. Physically speaking, he's always got enough energy, he's always perfect, never needs to go back and, and kind of recoup anything. And yet here it says, you have wearied me, I do get weary, and it turns out that I get weary of your iniquities. Interesting. Go back to verse 22 because he's more specific in the sorts of sin and one sin in particular that makes him tired. It's not that he doesn't know how to handle it, but it's that it does something to his ineffably perfect divine soul taxes it somehow. And he says in verse 22, you have been weary of me. When you are weary of me, I get tired of that. That's hard for me, is what God is saying here. He says, you did not call upon me if, if, by the way, if you are like me, Nate Winters, if you are like me, sometimes I come to church, for example, more for what I think that I'm going to be able to get from it that morning than for what I want to give. I'm looking for a feeling maybe that I can get more than for what I can give to him. You know, that maybe even I'm coming to church more for me than I am for him. And that sometimes I can even feel like, you know, this relationship has become burdensome to me. I can kind of weary of you, God. And I'm just really tired. And, and God says, okay, I can understand when you're spiritually uh, exhausted that's the kind of burden that I want to take from you and have you kind of put on my burden because my burden is easy and my load is light. But when your worship kind of um, unravels into nothing more than ritual and you're just kind of going through the motions and you feel like, ah, you know, I don't know. I don't even know that I want to go to church today. Maybe I'll skip first service. Maybe I'll go to second. Maybe I'll still be in bed by the time you know, 9.30 rolls around. When we have that kind of attitude, you know, God says, I become weary. 
Or when we have the kind of attitude, when I have the kind of attitude that says, I'm kind of bored with God. Life has just been kind of, eh, you know, lately. Humdrum. Who cares? All right, you know, if Kim really wants to go to church, I'll go to church. You know, now, I have to go to church because it's my job. <laughs> but you hear what I'm saying. Okay. Yet you did not call upon me. You have been weary of me. But what does that mean then in our lives? How do we apply that attribute of God to our lives? I want to say this. What about our attitude toward God as we approach him and not just on Sunday morning? As I work my way through the week, what is my attitude as I remember him? Do I remember him at all? When I get up Wednesday morning, do I remember him? And in those moments, as I begin my day, or maybe Thursday lunch, or Friday night, or whatever the case may be, you know, the different aspects, the different spheres of our lives, the things we have to do in a given week. Now, he's present, but do I recognize his presence? Do I want him around? Okay? Do I, do I just want him around? Do I want a kind of fellowship with him that's uninterrupted? And is that my attitude toward him? Or is there anything, Father, you know, if there's anything that smacks of uh, kind of a boredom or, 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 or that you would be offended because, it, it, you know, I'm, I'm taking this, this thing in my life as from you and, you know, it's, it, it feels like, you know, God, just don't do that to me anymore. My life is hard enough already and you're the one who's sovereign and in control and you've made it that way and just leave me alone. Where am I at in my attitude toward God? Not just toward church, but where am I at in my attitude toward God? Okay, so that's the question for application to ask ourselves. Second attribute. So we've got the weariness of God, and we also have the selectivity of God. You know, I'm, I'm kind of stretching for a word there. He says this in chapter 44... Verses 1 through 5. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. So the selectivity of God, the fact that he does choose, he chooses men and he chooses women for himself. And he does choose, and sometimes, you know, we hear that, or we go back to the Bible and we read that. And there's something in us that kind of wants to balk at that. And we remember a 2 Peter 3, 9, that he uh, desires that none should perish. That is the heart of God. We want to pray accordingly. He desires that none should perish. But then we go and we, we read, you know, if we're courageous enough, we read Romans chapter 9 where it says that he does choose also. And we want to say, well, God, that just doesn't seem fair, that you would choose some and not others. And that doesn't seem fair, and it kind of grates against me, and so maybe I'll close the book on Romans altogether, and I'll go to someplace else that feels better. 
in Ephesians chapter 1, it does use the word. It's a little theological here for the morning. It says that he predestines. But you know what it says? It says, in love he predestined. Just let that float down and settle for a moment. In love. So that as we're talking back and forth about that particular doctrine of God choosing, let's not feel that that is unfair as much as that is full of the love of God. In love. He chose. And this text in Isaiah talks about what he does for those he chooses. Awesome expressions of love. Listen to this. But now, hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. He will. Help me. He says, fear not. I mean, I don't have to be afraid anymore. I can live my life without being scared. You know, I used to think that when I was younger, when I would out, kind of outgrow my fear, you know, kind of for better or for worse, I'd, I'd, I'd kind of, I'd be around long enough, I'd have enough experience under my belt, I'd just kind of outgrow it. And it hasn't happened. I mean, I have to fight every day. And I think that the Lord sees to it in his goodness toward us to keep us dependent. There are things that are real that can harm you, and you need me in your life to make sure that they don't. You need to stay close, and you need to stay humble, and you need to stay reliant. Fear not, O oh, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. That, that word Jeshurun there is such a, uh, it, it's, it's almost like a nickname. Um, Almost, it's very, something very intimate, something uh, that communicates nearness and tenderness, uh, devotion, uh, protection, all of those things. And this is how he's talking about those he's chosen here. For I will pour water on a thirsty land. Thank God for water in a dry and parched area. You know what I'm talking about? And he says in the Psalms, uh, writer of Psalm 63, Oh God, you're my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My, my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. God, give me water. just need water. And here he's saying that for those I choose, I will quench their thirst. Father, I just want to say that's wonderful. I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit, capital S. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So I want to thank God for his Holy Spirit. 
At the time they're receiving this message of the back half of Isaiah, they're in exile. They're in exile because of the sin that they had committed. And what he's saying here is that, you know what? I'm going to send my spirit. I'm going to commission the Holy Spirit. And one of the wonderful things he's going to do is he's going to bless your offspring in such a way that they are not going to be as prone to committing the kinds of sins that have sent you into exile. Isn't that a good thing? My my Holy Spirit is going to show up And he's going to mean holy living for the entire community. And isn't that so good? I don't know about you and your family. I don't know about your descendants. My descendants right about now, and I'm thinking about one of them in particular, really needs the Holy Spirit to show up that way in his life. And so, you know, I, I kind of stake my, my hope the word of God and just want to believe that promise. Holy Spirit's going to show up and he's going to mean a better life, a more God-pleasing life for your kids and your grandkids and their kids and their kids and their kids. Pray to that end. Pray to that end. Goes on, they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call in the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. That, that these people will want to be Christian And they'll want everyone to know, I'm a Christian. And and, and please, like, let the word go forth about me. Jesus. Yeah. They want him. You know, so much so that it says, and one will write on his hand a tattoo I was talking with my friend Martin Beamer uh, just yesterday, and I said, you know, I see, I see that tattoo you've got there, Romans, I think it was 116, uh, on, on, his, on his forearm. And, uh, you know, I said, you know that it says in Leviticus 19 that God didn't like tattoos. And you know, so we had to, right away he came right back with a great answer and talking about the context of how God didn't want Israel to be identifying with the pagan nations and so forth. And I said, right on, brother. Right on. And did you know, by the way, it says in Isaiah 44 that the day will roll around when we'll actually want to say on our arms or on our hands, right on his hand, the Lord's. Hey, look, check this out. I belong to Jesus. Pretty cool. How do I apply that? Rejoice that you've been chosen. That's how to apply. Just go ahead and release the joy. I mean, experience it. That's a good thing that you've been chosen. I thank God. I just want to bear witness, say hallelujah. I've been chosen in love. I've been chosen. I didn't earn it. 
didn't go to a church enough and eventually, you know, I had enough brownie points. It wasn't because I grew up in a Christian home either. He chose me. And this is how he blesses me. Wonderful stuff. All right, third attribute. And we got to... I think we got to get going. I, I, still, I still can't figure out how to read that clock. All right, anyway. That doesn't bode well. Verse six, third attribute, the singularity of God. It says this. Thus says the Lord. I love it when God speaks in the first person in Scripture. He does that a lot, especially in the prophets. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I, I love it when God speaks in the first person, and I love it when he includes Jesus. That, that's the reference right there. When it capitalizes that word Redeemer, it's talking about Jesus there. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. We're not there yet. I don't want to steal Trent's thunder. Um, It's coming up, though, in chapter 46. Chapter 46, verses 9 and 10 are just so awesome. I just got to share them right about now. Um, It says that... Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. I mean, it makes, it makes me want to take my microphone off and just shout. What a comprehensive expression of the sovereignty of God by God. I am God. And there is no other singularity. I am God and there is none like me. So that there's not even one who would appear to maybe be like me appear to be a second God. No. I stand alone. And folks, we want, you want a God who stands alone. You know, in these ancient cultures, all polytheistic, all those gods, it just became a convoluted mess. And we're about to read of how ridiculous Ridiculous they were in just having to craft so many of their gods. But when we have one God, he makes, he makes sense of it. And one God who can stand alone, who, who doesn't need me. He wants me so much, but he doesn't need me. We want a God like that, a God who does not need 
And in the midst of that independence, in the midst of that self-sufficiency, he can meet every need that was ever felt, every actual need. He can meet every conceived need. There is nothing that can go unmet by God. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. That's how to apply that particular attribute, the attribute of God's singularity. That's how to apply it. He says right there with an exclamation point, and you are my witnesses. Let the truth about me ring forth. Don't be embarrassed. And don't be afraid either. But when you know this particular thing about me, that besides me there is no God, that I can ask and get away with asking questions like who is like me, rhetorically, and that the answer is always no one. Well, then let that be known about me. He says it right there. And you are my witnesses. So go ahead and testify, declare it, just shout that one from from the rooftops. Boldly declare it. And not only that that's, by the way, true about me, but how about this? Um, When it comes to my son and his name, I understand that it can be relatively easy to introduce God into a conversation, that's good. Continue to do that. It can be a little bit more difficult to introduce the name of Jesus into a conversation. But I'm there, and I will kind of lead you in the midst of that talk. And you can do that, and I'm going to give you the courage to do that. And in those conversations, you might even get to the point where okay, it's now to the point where it's not quite enough to just talk about Jesus. Now I have to talk about Jesus, or I may have even just been asked the question, don't you believe that Jesus is the only way to God? And then what am I going to say? That there is a single way, that not only is God the only God, but that there is an only way to God, and that that's through Jesus Christ? And am I going to be bold enough and kind enough to introduce that into a conversation with a friend or a colleague or a neighbor? Jesus said, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You you can't get to God, my Father, unless you go through me. But then will we, will we share that with the people in our lives, these people we love, these people we're called to love. We have a heart for them. We have a growing heart for them. But will we share that with them? Okay, so we're not going to read uh, the whole next prose section here because we've got to get moving, huh? Um, 
all the way down to verse 19 for the fourth attribute, the incredulity of God, that God just at times I think marvels and I think I put, uh, because we can be ridiculous sometimes. Okay, so may, maybe you're saying, you know, Nate, go ahead and speak for yourself. But uh, I want to say that maybe, maybe you'll let me speak for all of us on that. Verse 19 that God can be incredulous at times at us. Verse 19 summarizes it pretty well. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So three things I'm kind of spotting there amidst their efforts to fashion idols out of these blocks of wood. God is saying there is a lack of discernment. God is saying there is a deluded heart. And God is saying he doesn't realize that he cannot deliver himself in those two verses. And so the way I want to apply that is to say, Nate, admit it. Just admit it. Just admit it that there are times when you so lack discernment. You're not thinking straight. And so you're making all the wrong decisions. You lack discernment. And there are times when you've just deceived yourself. Your heart's deluded. And there are times when you just scramble to no end to try and fix whatever's gone wrong in your life. You try to spring yourself out of this trap you've fallen into, but, 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 but you're not turning to me. And to that, I just want to admit that and say, yes, you're right about that, Father. Forgive me. Help me to cast all of my cares back on you. Help me entrust myself to you again. Just keep me coming back. So that's the fourth attribute. And final fifth attribute here in verse 21. Just verses 21 and 22. Just see the commitment of God that it is so perfectly exhaustive. It is universal toward us. That is 1,000%. I understand mathematically. You ought not to even use a figure like 1,000%, right? It should only be 100 or less. Whatever. Okay. He is for us. That's the point. Remember these things. You know, remember my attributes. Remember these things, O oh Jacob, in Israel. For you are my servant. In other words, embrace that role. That's something I can do to apply this. I don't even need to talk yet about how to perform that role. Just to know that I am a servant. That I am that. And to want that and just to embrace that. Yes, Father, I am a servant and make me a better servant. Yes, but just always be reminding me that I'm a servant. I'm not the Lord and you're the servant. I'm the servant, you're the Lord. 
Make me a happy servant. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, Elaine. Make me a happy servant. I formed you. You are my servant. Oh, Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. How does it make you feel to know that he will never forget you? Even when it feels like he has, he hasn't. And to know that and to have the feeling flow from the fact that he has said he will never forget you. I blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. And then he says, return to me for I have redeemed you. That's the application right there. Return to me for I have redeemed. He's already redeemed. But am I in the kind of groove that continues to return and to return and to return? In many places in Scripture, that word return is synonymous with the word repent. Do I continue to repent and repent and repent? He's redeemed me. He says here that he'd redeemed them. I have redeemed you. But you need to return to me. Continue to return to me. You know, what a great, perfect, I think, segue right into communion. Return to me. Be in the midst of returning all the time. Return to me.